It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I've been having a wonderful chat with the guest today, Scott, and he mentioned one thing that I really wanted to ask him in the moment and thought, no, 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 I'm going to wait until we start recording. (laughs) We were connecting over various loves and experiences of nature. And Scott, you mentioned that you've done a lot of island hopping. And I would love to know which islands and why were you doing the island hopping? Okay. Well, Every island in the Southeastern Caribbean and many of them in the Bahamas. So think about if you draw a line from Florida to Venezuela, basically been to every island there, many of them multiple times. I lived there for six years, most of it on a sailboat, just sailing around, embedding myself in those communities and spending a lot of time in nature and a lot of time alone and a lot of time with my wife. And why was I there? I was there because at about age 40, I had had a really successful career. I'd been really lucky that I was sort of plucked from the masses by some really powerful people early in my 20s. And so by the time I was even 30, I had worked with some incredible legendary figures, Robert Crandall, Gordon Bethune, David Bonderman. And, you know, I could see where that was going and it was just going for more, more and more and more and more. And it was never going to be enough and it was never going to be something different. And so I just did a crazy thing. I sold everything I owned and gave away everything that I couldn't sell and turned in the keys to my companies and bought a ratty old sailboat and took off to live in the islands. What did that feel like to go from more, more, more to less, less, less? You know, that was uh, the first few, let's just say, weeks or months of that were really difficult because what you want to do is you want to set aside some things from your old life and you want to bring them with you. It's just natural, right? So we think, well, I want to have this new experience, but I also want to smuggle all the old stuff in with me. And the problem is that you can't really bring the convenient life in the retail republic of the United States, you can't bring that with you to Barbuda. That's not going to work. There are really almost no stores there for starters. And if you go in to go grocery shopping, you don't even need a grocery list because they might not have any milk. Not they might not have the milk you want. They might not have any milk, period. So there was just a lot of unlearning, a lot of stripping away of all of these sort of false ideas that accumulate over time when you live in this kind of artificial reality of uh, Western Civ. That is so fascinating to me. I'm very drawn to it. And I still feel like there's such a long way to go because perhaps I haven't chosen to strip away those false ideas yet. It's appealing, but it feels a little bit scary to me. I mean, I mentioned to you earlier, Scott, that I recently become interested in mountaineering. And one of the things that's often involved, or perhaps always involved, I'm still a beginner, is doing backpacking because it takes multiple days to climb some of these top mountains in the world. And I've been slowly learning about, I think the term is lightweight? That doesn't sound right. Anyways, it's the concept of when you go backpacking, you you don't want to have a lot of things with you. You really want to have the essentials. And even that concept feels a little bit uncomfortable and scary because, and yet as scary as that is, it's also really intriguing. (laughs) So is that kind of how you were feeling? Yeah. So I tell people that life on a boat, on the ocean, in third world countries is it's self-reliant, it's adventurous, it's exciting. And it, it, it is a little bit scary sometimes because mother nature is incredibly fierce. And until you're very far away from the safety and security of life as you know it, 
you really don't appreciate just how fierce Mother Nature can be. But that having been said, I think that the remarkable thing for me was that when I came back after those six years, what I actually saw, I saw fear everywhere in the United States, everywhere. Everyone is absolutely just soaking in fear, fear of not having the right clothes, fear of not being on the right team, fear of not having read the right book, of not having vacation in the right spot, of not being beautiful enough, of being alone, of a million other things that Madison Avenue tries to convince us that we should be afraid of so that we will buy the product from them to cure the fear that they gave us in the first place. It's such a racket. And you you don't even see it because we're like fish immersed in the water in it. But when you go away and you're outside of that for six years and then you come back, you're like, holy smoke, everybody here is so afraid all the time. That's really resonating with me. (laughs) I've been thinking about it, but as you're speaking on it, I realize I'm still very much immersed in that. And so it's a sense that I have, but maybe not the knowing yet because I haven't stepped out. I guess I've never stepped out of this world, the society that I've been living in for an extended period of time. I've traveled internationally, but it's brief, you know, maybe a few months when I was in college studying abroad, but the country and feeling so ignorant about what's going on elsewhere and what the experiences are and even the privileges. And I'm curious, did privilege come up for you in addition to fear? Was it acknowledging, especially given what you were describing, you you had the luck or privilege of a lot of great opportunities when you were in your 20s and 30s and then made a decision to do things differently. So what was that revealing to you? So it is true that I had a very privileged life, no question. Just the opportunities that I was afforded in these crazy special moments of meeting these incredibly powerful people when they were in a good mood and they decided they liked me. I mean, it's just that. But at the same time, I'll tell you that there are thousands and thousands of people that we met in the Caribbean who were down there living on $1,500 a year on a boat. They had a small boat, not a big boat. They had a simple boat, not a complicated boat. They weren't going out to five-star resort dinners all the time, but they were living in the islands. They were doing the thing they wanted to do. And these are people, they could be a truck driver. It could be anybody. It's not just Silver Spoon people who are down there doing that. Although, obviously, the ultra-rich are also down there doing it. So I think that there's this sense of privilege that we talk about socially now, and that was certainly there, but it's not necessary. People can do this that you just be surprised. The problem is not a lack of privilege, I think. The problem is that another falsehood that we've uh, sort of adopted is that good intentions matter. Like it's the thought that counts. And so people will say, oh, you're in the Caribbean? You're living on a sailboat? I've always wanted to do that and maybe someday I will. And you know, our response to them was always, Well, that's great. You can certainly do it. All you have to be willing to do is literally leave everything behind. And if you're not willing to do that, no amount of planning is ever going to get you there. We used to talk about escape velocity. Like you imagine this rocket and it's got to get out from Earth's orbit. And the amount of energy that's required is just unbelievable just to get it out of that orbit so it doesn't fall back to Earth again. And socially, it's the same thing. If you want to move very, very far from whatever this sphere is in which you're in a rut, it's going to take an unbelievable amount of energy for you to escape that. And intentions are not going to be enough. Very big actions, like seemingly risky actions. So at one point, I sold everything that I owned in the world fit into nine of those Home Depot crates, you know, the black ones with the yellow lids, nine, my whole life, nine crates. So if you can't get to that point, then you probably can't have the experience that I had, but that has nothing to do with having a bunch of money. That has to do with just saying, I really, really want to move from the place where I'm trying to launch my rocket to whatever this planet is that I want to get to. And what is the gap between wanting and dreaming of something and actually doing it? Because that makes a lot of sense in theory, but the way you describe the rocket, 
there's still a lot of forces that people are up against. And that could be their upbringing. That could be their circumstances. Like there's so many factors there. So how did you get from a thought to the action? So it's a great one. One of the sticky tentacles of my life before was that I have a very, very strong nuclear family and very, very strong friendships. And all of those relationships felt that I was turning my back on them. And so in, I mean, they it's natural. It's just an extension of love, right? They were so accustomed to me being there. They wanted me to be there. They wanted me to be safe, particularly my mom. You're going to go where pirates are? Are you kidding me? So... You know, it was just them, you know, basically saying, but I really like you and I really want you to be around. And on some level, see, the practical difficulty is to be able to say, guys, I love you too, but my soul needs this thing. And so I'm going to have to step away from you for a time because I need this. And so there was a lot of, I had like my lifelong mentor actually at one point accused me of being selfish when I was talking about this. He said, you know, you sound like you're really being selfish here. And I said, well, if I don't do this to take care of this part of my soul, there's not going to be anything left for me to provide to anybody else. And so on some level, even selfishness, there's got to be a little bit of it, right? If all we are is making ourselves a draft horse for everyone around us, we will cease to be who we are. So it's a lot of stuff like that. When I talk about escape velocity, it's really not about how do you shut down all your bank accounts. I mean, honestly, that's drivel. What's really hard is being able to walk away from your mom, being able to walk away from your friends. How did your relationship with your mother and friends change during that time and afterwards? Uh, well, I think at first they don't understand, right? They don't understand why. They don't understand what you're going to because nobody's ever experienced this, right? I had a friend, one of my dearest friends asked me, really, how many sunsets can you see? And so you can imagine there's like disdain embedded in that question, right? Like this judgment, like you're being stupid, Scott. And my only response to that was like, you remember the Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop commercial where the, how many licks does it take to get to the bottom of a Tootsie? Yeah. Well, the world may never know how many sunsets because I have seen thousands and thousands of them and I'll still be happy to see a thousand more of them. But that's just a good example of they, I think every, anytime somebody senses that they're going to be abandoned, I know that's a strong word, but I think I had a lot of friends and family that sensed that I was abandoning them. And a natural response to that is to pre-abandon someone so that they can basically make me walk the emotional plank if I'm going to abandon them. So there's, you know, a little bit of that going on, I'm sure too. But overall, I think it was really just not knowing, like, what are you going to do? How are you going to live? Are you going to be okay? Are you ever going to come back? I mean, questions to which I didn't really have any answers at the time. How did you know when the journey was over that this six years, I imagine you went into it with a bit of openness and lack of clarity, but I, that's an assumption. So did you know it would take six years? No, like, How did you navigate that? Well, when I first started, it started off with a, I'm going to go take a month sabbatical. And my partner of 20 something years, my work partner said, you know, you probably should take a sabbatical. So I did. And when I was coming back, he said, you know, I don't think you should come back yet. I think you should just keep going. And so that one month became a year, became five years, became six years. And how did I know it was time? There was a longing. Like what I was longing for changed. I was longing for quiet. I was longing for stripping away things that I realized weren't right I was longing for time to read and write and draw. And I was longing to use my hands because I'd worked in the abstract world of logic for a long time. I needed to rebuild my sailboat. I needed to do things with my hands and become a different person than I was before. And eventually what I was longing for was conversations like this. I was longing for talking to somebody who had you know, a bit of the sh same shared cultural background that I had that wanted to think about society, that wanted to think about the health of other people. And I missed my friends very, very deeply. And I missed my family very, very deeply. My kids were now out of college and it was time to be around for them having their 
adult lives. So they were just, it was natural. Honestly, it didn't feel like a big, didn't feel like a big come to Jesus moment. It just felt like, you know, I noticed that these are the things I'm thinking about. And all of those things happen to be people who live back in the States. So it's probably time for me to sell the boat and move back. As you were sharing that, I was thinking about the movie Interstellar. Have you seen that? Yeah, that's a great show. I just watched it for the second time. I think it came out in like 2014 or something. I just rewatched it, maybe for only the second time. And part of the story is this father who is very called to do something different than his life. You know, he's. I don't want to have any spoilers, so I'll, I'll tell the story lightly for anyone who doesn't know it, but it, it takes place in, sometime in the future when the climate is not in great shape, and he's working on this farm, but he keeps talking about how much he loves, I think he had worked for NASA or something. He might have flown planes. It's a little unclear to me. But anyways, he was doing something in his daily life to survive with his family, but he was called to do something else and he gets this opportunity and is also very tied to humanity and saving the earth essentially. But he has to make this decision to leave behind his loved ones. And it, that's a huge part of the story, how much he wants to do something bigger than himself and something big for himself, but he, it requires leaving people behind and not knowing who they will be when he returns, if he returns too. That's a big question. Yeah, it's a very difficult situation that we can get into. And, and all change in our lives doesn't necessarily involve leaving people behind, of course. I mean, there are habits and routines and priorities that we can have that we need to set aside, we need to get away from. That can be hard to do. And many of those don't, in fact, require literally selling everything you own and moving to a third world country. So I don't mean to sort of make this hyperbole for everyone. There are any number of eating issues, any number of exercise issues, any number of social issues that we need to either embrace or unembrace from time to time throughout our lives. And I guess the point of that is simply to say that every time you want to make a significant change in your life, there are going to be a lot of otherwise well-meaning people who are going to say, no, 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 don't change. I'm so comfortable with who you are. And it requires a lot of wisdom in that moment to separate, okay, so should I be listening to these people as voices of reason in my life, or should I appreciate the love and the gesture and then walk away anyway? Because change is very uncomfortable for other people, but sometimes change is necessary for us. Why do you think we, or you, in your experience, observing yourself and other people, why do you think change is so hard? Well, I think that there's, first of all, change is just, it is the universe, right? It is this in cosmic soup within which we exist. And that for from time to time, we're able to carve off a little microcosm. There's this story that I tell about my wife is French and took her around to lots of different places in the U.S. to show her things about the U.S. And we went to Niagara Falls. And the thing that I remember most about Niagara Falls, obviously, it's enormously powerful. It's unbelievable chaos. But as we were walking on the river above the falls, before the water gets to the falls, I noticed these little spiral back eddies where the water near the shore would just kind of bend backwards very slowly. And it was collecting little leaves and making little pinwheels of the leaves. And they're just suspended. They're not going over the falls right now. And so at any moment, a duck could step in the water, a change in the water level, a change in the wind. And those calm little pools, those calm little leaves would be sucked over the falls and just blown into a million pieces, right? But in that moment, there's just this peace and this order. And I think that it's important for us to look at it and say, listen, your life right now, that sense of order and harmony and peace that you have, it's that little spiral back eddy above Niagara Falls, right? And the falls are just around the corner. And if you can get to grips with that, it'll make you a lot less sticky with the way things are. It'll just let you appreciate, look, this is a moment. This is not forever. Whatever that thing is that you can't imagine yourself setting aside, it's not forever. It's going to fall apart. Entropy is the way the universe works. So you need to suck all the marrow out of it right now. And then when it's time for that to go away, you find another thing. It sounds so obvious, you know? <laughs> But I notice myself, even with the fear, you know, I'm aware of fear, 
but it feels so embedded in me. And my whole life, I have had, I've been very drawn to spirituality and wellness. And I wondered if that was my own version of control and gripping and trying to prevent things just always trying to anticipate is a tendency to me. I'm, I'm a planner. I like to know things in advance. If I'm going to go over the edge of a waterfall, I would like to be prepared and I want to have the best outfit on to have the less harm on my body or be in the best boat, you know, like, and it's, it's this desire that I can always be okay on the other side. But we don't fully have control over whether or not we're okay. And yet, I think the more we release ourselves into those situations, that's actually how we end up being okay. I think that's true. I think unless you embrace the idea of chaos and entropy being the norm, you aren't really appreciating the specialness of what it is that you have in this particular moment. One of the great things about sailing, one of the great life lessons about sailing is that you can't simply drive the boat wherever you want to go. The wind and the waves dictate where you can take the boat. And you may not like that, but your liking it is irrelevant. So now you can be a bad sailor and it'll, it's not going to work out very well. And you can be a good sailor and it's going to work out pretty well. But under no circumstances are you going to be a sailor that can control Mother Nature. That is not on the table. And so there's this two things that we have to be able to sort of grasp and, and understand. It's one of my favorite quotes from F. Scott Fitzgerald. He said that the sort of mark of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to grasp two contradictory ideas at the same time and retain the ability to function. So on the one hand, Mother Nature, you cannot beat her. You cannot. On the other hand, you still shouldn't be a schmuck. You still need to develop some skill and make good choices and you do the best you can and then realize that she may just backhand you or she may give you this amazing rainbow and this unbelievable champagne sailing day. But it's both and, it's not either or. You cannot tame nature, but you're definitely responsible for making good choices. So that's, I think that you're right, that there is a bit of planning, but I don't think that any amount of planning is ever going to fully insulate you from the reality of the universe, which is entropy. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if that concept is what draws me to things like mountains. I, I'm not very drawn to the ocean. So I'm, that's part of my curiosity with you. I'm, I'm drawn to the ocean in the sense of milder experiences, but boats, for some reason, I feel a lot of discomfort around. And yet mountains, I don't feel a lot of resistance to. And as I've been studying mountaineering, preparing my body and my mind and learning all the elements of it. One thing that comes up a lot is you can be incredibly prepared and go to a place like Mount Everest, but even with all the preparation, all the money that you might put into something, if the mountain is going to do something, that's just the way it is. Your preparation is not going to prevent you from being injured or maybe not surviving it. And you hear these stories of incredibly skilled people losing their lives because that's nature as you're describing. And yet I don't feel turned off by that. I do feel turned off by the ocean. There's something more unsettling though. How do you feel? Like <laughs> I think that's fair. Well, I live in the mountains. I live at 8,000 feet. So uh, what I tell people is that when I'm here, what I feel like is that nature is giving me a hug. Like there's trees around me, which of course, from an evolutionary biology perspective, that's all kinds of signals of security and home and safety. The mountains, I can see them. I can see very far. I'm not going to drown walking on land. When I go to the edge of the ocean, even though I'm a very skilled sailor, I would tell you I feel something very different. And what I feel is respect. That place right there, that is not my native element. And things can go very south very fast. So I need to be very careful. I need to be prepared. I need to be respectful. And I need to accept the fact that even if I am all of those things, I may still die. So it's a very different experience, even for me on the ocean than it is in the mountain. I think that one of those things that you talk about that's difficult for us to embrace 
is uncertainty because we are, especially in the West, just programmed that we're supposed to be lead pipe certain about everything. We're supposed to be certain about what we think about politics. We're supposed to be certain about what we think about religion. We're supposed to be certain that this is the love of my life, my soulmate, and this is forever. I mean, there's a hundred different ways that we're supposed to be absolutely certain about things. And in my experience, being in the islands, that was one of the things that got stripped away was this notion of certainty. And to begin to accept the fact that uncertainty is actually life. And we have to find a way to exist in that uncertainty and in that ambiguity in a way that is mentally healthy. But if you think back, I mean, we think about how predictable things are and people talk about the ability to forecast the future and to build a plan. But let's just think back to the last 25 years and think about the things that did not exist 25 years ago. Okay. So let's just start with like Google. The whole thing did not exist 25 years ago. Okay. An iPhone, Arab Spring, Bitcoin, Twitter, not Elon's Twitter, the original Twitter. I mean, none of these things existed even, right? And so if you just kind of keep going at that, you can just realize that something huge and totally surprising is happening every single year, probably every month. Now, you can't forecast which one of those is going to happen, but you can say with some certainty that it's unforecastable. Some kind of crazy surprise is going to happen next month or next week. And you're going to say, gosh, that was so rare. And it's not really that rare. It happens all the time. I agree. And I have felt that very profoundly more and more. And I'm trying to think when it, I mean, certainly the pandemic showed us that in a lot of ways, but I have been particularly noticing it during this current trend of artificial intelligence. And in my industry from the social media standpoint, content creation, like this digital realm of entrepreneurship that I've been in for 15 years or so. This year, 2023, feels very different in the sense that there's a shift in how we're doing things. There's some fear. And there's almost like this tension I'm noticing from other people to get their footing and I don't know if they're trying to hold on or they're trying to anticipate. And I'm in this place of thinking, I don't think we can really anticipate a lot because just the past few months, as of the time of this recording in July, 2023, I saw that the AI trend start at the beginning of this year. And then this past month or two, it's like just boom. And a lot of people are are trying to figure out what that means for them. Is it sustainable? Is this just a kind of trend that's going to go away. Like there's all these kind of questions and I'm sitting here thinking, is it even worth trying to figure out the answers? (laughs) Because if it's constantly changing, the answer you might have today about something might not work a week from now. So how do you operate in that world? And I, I think it's a metaphor a lot for what you're describing and also ties into the theme of your book, which is about being on the seesaw and finding balance. When something is so volatile, how do we move from that place of wanting certainty and security so badly to a place of embracing, oh, I have no idea what's around the corner, so I want to kind of find balance. But it's it's like that F. F. Scott Fitzgerald quote that you mentioned. It's like, can you look for certainty while also acknowledging that there's no such thing? (laughs) Ah, yeah. So my mentor, really great guy, He really changed my view about what strategic planning could be. And one of the ways that he did that was that he said, strategic planning is not about the plan. Strategic planning is about identifying the things that matter, the things that could make you wrong, the things that could hurt you, the things that could help you. Strategic planning is about understanding what forces are at play or might be at play between now and when you get to whatever you've defined as the finish line. 
so that you can be monitoring those things. So instead of saying, oh, I can identify all the forces, which that's relatively easy for us to do to identify the relevant forces. But what's hard for us to do then is to say, and I know exactly how each of those forces is going to play out. That ability to foretell is very, very limited for human beings. So a lot of times we get caught in a planning process where we say, okay, so I'm going to make this amount of money for this many years, and then I'm going to get this promotion, and then I'm going to get this, I'm going to get married, and I'm going to have saved this amount of money, and then I'm going to have these kids, and we're going to send them to this school. And in my experience, maybe 2% of that plan is going to happen that way, right? But what will happen is there will be a need to save money. There will be a point at which you change jobs. There will, let's say if you're fortunate, there will be some kids. It's not going to happen exactly the way that you think. And so if you develop a plan that's all about these exact things happening in this exact sequence in this exact time, of course, you're going to be disappointed. But if in the planning process, you identify that there are some things that are really important and we need to keep an eye on those things as the conditions evolve, then you can say, well, I'm accepting uncertainty with respect to some things, but I know that some other things are going to be important. And so I'm going to have, I'm going to spend my attention on those things as well. So, I mean, I had a lot of success as an entrepreneur, but what I try to tell people when they ask about, you know, how did we build our plan for our business? I'd say, well, you're really asking the wrong question because the plan that we put together was 90 plus percent wrong. Yeah, I still have the PowerPoint deck and it's really a great exercise to go back every once in a while when I'm feeling a little bit too much pride. You go back and read that PowerPoint deck and you're like, oh yeah, see, you are really stupid. (laughs) As you're speaking on this so much makes sense to me and resonates with me, but I find that my personal seesaw balance is being in this mentality that you're describing in this conversation of just balance and embracing and and not, you know, planning, but also knowing that it's not all going to be right or things are going to, you know, like all of this. And yet my, so that's like kind of one side of the seesaw. The other side is what I feel like I encounter with at least what I perceive to be the majority of people. I could be wrong, but it's a common experience for me to experience people that want the certainty so bad. They're almost rejecting the other side of my seesaw. And so it's my work to say, okay, like maybe I'm a bit, I think a bit unconventionally, at least in the United States right now. (laughs) I want to stay in that though, because it resonates with me. And yet, based on where I live, based on the work that I do, I, I still need to participate a bit or I'm choosing to, I guess it's not a need, but a choice to participate in a space that wants me to operate in their realm of no, let's make a plan. And oh, 10% success rate is not acceptable. We need to go for 90% success rate. You know, like it's a little hard to even describe, but I know you understand what I'm trying to say, Scott. It's, it's like balancing between two ways of thinking while embracing what feels authentic and true to me and yet operating in a, a bubble of a different way of thinking. Like I could choose to leave the bubble kind of like you did, it sounds like. But I don't even know if that would be permanent. You know, I'd be entering another bubble and another way of thinking. You know, it's like. Well, there's this great book by Jonathan Haidt, and it's called The Righteous Mind. And I've read that. I was just, it's, it's so funny you brought that up. I, I just was reading a quote from that book earlier today. <laughs> yeah. So it's a wonderful book and it's right on topic for what you're talking about, because the reality is that when we try to explain why we want to do something. We are often just making stuff up, right? We don't really know why it is that we want to do things a lot of the time. It's our intuitive self that just instinctively wants this thing. And then when we ask, yeah, if I ask you, so why mountain climbing? You'll give me a very well-reasoned answer for why mountain climbing. But here's the thing. It probably doesn't bear any truth to why mountain climbing, because there was something inexplicable, something intuitive and non-rational that drew you to mountain climbing. And the explanation is sort of your sacrifice to the social gods who expect you to be able to explain yourself. So I really honestly 
am less concerned about the explain yourself side of things. Now, on the other side of things, I do think that I don't want to be in the position of giving someone an excuse for not balancing their checkbook, for not watching what they're spending on their credit cards. There are practical considerations and those things you can't look away from. I made sure that my kids finished college. I made sure that I took care of their expenses. I mean, I basically attended to all of my commitments, but there's also more to life than just those things. And so it is this, this balancing, this many forces. In the book, you talk about surf the seesaw and you know, surfing the seesaw is standing on top of the seesaw with one leg on each side of the fulcrum and kind of keeping both seats off of the ground. So it's using a seesaw in a way that it wasn't intended, but I find it a lot more fun than the way that it was intended. And I think it's one of those examples that we have from our childhood about balance as an active verb. So for instance, we would say balance this broomstick in your hand, right? So you just hold it and you're moving it around and it's active or walk the balance beam or balance a bicycle without training wheels. All of these ideas, they're, they're dynamic, they're pulsing, they're not static. But as adults, we've kind of smuggled in this notion of balance as a static equilibrium. So we need to find a position on some spectrum, and we need to defend that position forever. In all circumstances, for all points in time, for all people, there's a position. And that kind of static equilibrium, a kid knows right away, that's just death. And a biologist also would tell you that stasis is death, that life is, it's evolving, it's flow, it's pulsing, it's changes in the environment to which we adapt. And so I think that what we, what I would say is, look, balance, like I'm talking about, is like a dynamo. It's oscillating between my intuitive and my rational. It's oscillating between my artistic and my analytical. It's oscillating between my selfish and my selfless. It's pulsing and ebbing and flowing. And as it's doing so, it's just like a dynamo. The positive negative on that dynamo is actually generating energy and generating life for me. So I think that that's probably the, it's probably healthy that you feel this tension. I think it is because I feel that tension and, and I've gotten just comfortable with it that my life next month, next year is going to be different than my life right now. And I think that there's something wonderful and exciting about that. There really is. And that example of explaining yourself really resonates with me because I am a very deep thinking, intuitive person and often felt misunderstood. And I think that's because it's very hard to express some of these things. And I might try, obviously, as a podcaster, speaking about these big topics, trying to figure out how to say them and, and knowing that each person I'm, I'm sharing that with is interpreting it in different ways. That a great reference to The Righteous Mind. It makes me want to reread it. I was really blown away by that book and just how challenging communication is. And yet we live in a world where it's expected for communication to be a skill set that's easy. To, you know, it's like, oh, are, are you a good communicator? Recently, I started looking for some different freelance work and went through for the first time in many, many years, like a job search. Like, And I was just kind of curious, like, what is it like to apply for jobs? And I felt so disheartened by it, but yet it was very re revealing that I don't really fit into these worlds that want to put me in a container because whether it was through an application or an interview, I noticed people wanted me to have this perfect response that was easy to explain and that fit into the way they were thinking. And it was like this fit in, fit in, fit in. And that leads me to that question of, okay, what if you don't fit in? How do you still survive in a world that's a very capitalistic, essentially? Like we, in the United States, at least in many similar countries, it's about making money because you need the money to pay for your rent. You need the money to pay for your food. Like we, we live in a society where we have to generate money, but how do you do that if it's the way of making money is completely at odds with your soul? Well, I certainly don't know how to square that circle. I think that there are infinite shades of gray between those two poles that you just described, though, right? There are ways to feed yourself that do not require bastardizing your principles. Now, they may require an adjustment to your standard of living 
And so then the question becomes, okay, well, so are you just a prostitute or are you really willing to make changes to your standard of living to accommodate the level of income that you can generate from doing something that doesn't destroy your soul? When I was living in the Caribbean, I lived on maybe $2,000 a month because that's what was necessary because I had walked away from all of my commercial interests. So you don't get to complain about that if that's just the nature of the choice. When I came back, it was really important to me to do some things that had more of a social bent. And so that's what I've been doing with writing the book and with Pure Sailboats, a company that I started to manufacture boat kits for people that want to build their own boat at home. So you don't have to buy your own boat, you can build your own boat. And I'm working on a housing venture that's got social overtones to it too. So these things do not, they will never pay the way that the strategy work and the technology work paid. But I'm comfortable with that because there is enough now. There is this concept of enough in my life because I went away and stripped away all of the more, 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 more. And then you can just simply say, hey, you know what? This life is really, really good. There's a lot to be grateful about this life. You know, I went in a few weeks ago to get a, make a withdrawal to get a cashier's check for my taxes because I have to make quarterly tax payment. And the teller, I think, said in a, sorority, sem, in a semi-prepared way, she said, oh, I'm so sorry. It really kind of sucks to have to pay taxes. I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's such a huge honor to be in this place the roads are great. I don't worry about fire suppression. I don't worry about, you know, somebody breaking into my house. I can shop anywhere I want to shop. My phone simply works. There's a hundred reasons for me to be so grateful to live in this country in this moment. This is a trivial price for me to pay. But that person had completely lost perspective, right? Because they haven't seen anything else. They haven't had to live in a place where the citizens don't trust the courts. You can't even wrap your head around that idea, right? Somebody breaks into your house, steals everything that you own, kills somebody that you love, and nothing's going to get done about it. Wrap your head around that for a minute before you complain about anything about living in this country. And so, yeah, I think that when I'm here, I feel an incredible honor. I feel an incredible privilege. And not because I make millions of dollars a year, I don't. I have a modest life and I'm so grateful for that modest life. And I'm so grateful that I get to choose to do the things that I want to do. And it would be totally inappropriate for me to complain that, gee, I can't make a million dollars a year by doing this social entrepreneurship things. Yeah. And does that tie into the theme of the echo chamber? Because that's what it sounds like for me. And I would mentioned to you before we started recording that term echo chamber really resonated because Maybe what that bank teller was expecting was for you to echo back her sentiment. She wasn't expecting for you to say, actually, I have a different perspective on this. And I often wonder when somebody makes a statement like that, are they just echoing it back without really giving thought or is it just a matter of ignorance or a different perspective? Well, I do think that a lot of the stuff that we repeat is more of a tribal mantra. It's more of a secret handshake. So I'm just doing this thing so that I show you that I'm a part of this tribe and not really thinking very hard about it. Because everything in the States in particular has become symbolic. We don't respond to things for what they are. We respond to things for what they represent. And somehow everything takes on this just huge mythic proportions. I promise you, we will hear no less than 10,000 times over the course of the next year how this is the most important election in the history of the country. No, it's not. It's exactly as important as every single other election that has ever happened or will ever happen. It's an election. You process the candidates, you process the issues, you try to think about yourself and your family and other people, and you try to make the best choice. It is in no way different. And anybody that tries to tell you otherwise is really trying to get you to turn off some part of your brain that can process things for what they are. So, yeah, I think that this idea of echo chambers, to me, it's incredibly toxic because when I was writing the book, what I wanted to do was to try to get people to see that in cultures that are very, very different than ours, with people who live very different lives than ours, we can still see incredible truth. 
we can still learn incredible things. And if that's true, then we ought to be able to learn from the next door neighbor whose politics is different than mine. We ought to be able to learn from the person sitting next to us in the movie theater who has a different lifestyle choice than we have. We ought to be able to learn from all of these people. Because I said something the other day that I quoted Stalin the other day, that one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a statistic, right? But I didn't say it was Joseph Stalin. And the person I was talking to was an evangelical Christian. And they're like, oh, that's a great quote. And I said, yeah, Joseph Stalin. And their face just fell. It's like, oh, well, that can't be true then. I'm like, wait a minute. Evil people can say true things. They can see truth. What makes them evil is not that they don't see truth. It's how they respond to the truth. Okay. And, but this idea that I can't learn from somebody else who sees things differently than me, or that I somehow have switched teams if I say, oh, well, you know, there is some truth to that other statement. I just think we've really lost it. And in the book, there actually are two chapters on diversity in, in the book. And, and I honestly put them in there out of just sheer rebellion because, you know, those are hot button topics right now. And there's a segment of people that don't want to read about anything about diversity. But to me, I'll just tell you, I think diversity is the human species superpower. No other animal on earth has the diversity of preferences and the diversity of interests and the diversity of tastes and the diversity of styles and the diversity of behaviors and hobbies and everything else that the human animal has. Think about dolphins, okay? There's just not that much difference between the dolphins. There's just not that much difference between all the humpback whales. There's not that much difference in tortoises, okay? But human beings, oh my God, good luck finding two of them that are alike, right? This is what makes us so special. And it is the source of our adaptability. It is the source of our genius in the face of unforeseen circumstances. So to get people to realize that diversity is not a penalty that we pay, it's not some like social tax. Diversity, it's an incredible mine full of treasure. But in order to be able to take advantage of that, we have to approach it as such, and we have to approach it not as, well, that's different, and that's different, and that's different. Don't want any of that different stuff. That, all, that stuff is really scary. If I embrace something that's different, I might lose control. If I embrace something that's different, I might be judged by my tribe. If we can set all that stuff aside and just process this and realize, listen, guys, diversity is our species superpower. It is the source of so many different ways for how to fish how to farm, how to raise a kid, how to take care of your neighbor, how to make a road. Whatever the problem is that you are looking at, there are a hundred good ways to solve that problem that you cannot imagine. And you need some people in your life who've been through different things, who've read different things, who've experienced different things, so that you can just get a hint of some of these other ways of skinning that cat. I'm so glad that you touched upon that because diversity is a big focus of mine personally and professionally and really looking at my own biases and experiences and fears. And one thing I'm curious about for you when it comes to diverse people and experiences, if, if you found yourself being fearful or noticed other people reflecting fear, that comes up a lot for me as I travel I don't know if it's because I'm female. Maybe you don't have the same experience as a man, but there's all this fear about other people. Like, where are you going to be? What part of the country? What are those people going to be like? Are you in danger because you're a woman traveling by herself and entering into these places with, quote, different types of people? And there's an assumption that you are unsafe around people who are different than you. And that's certainly not just the case in my travels. That's a case, as you mentioned, in so much of our mentality. And yet it doesn't make any sense to me because I don't usually feel unsafe, but I notice other people projecting their fears onto me. Yeah. Well, so I think that I'll just give you two examples from my experience. I've only ever been attacked in all of my travels. I've only ever been attacked one time. I was attacked by a man with a machete 
on a beach. The beach was in Hawaii and the man was white. But when I was telling you that story, you did not go to Hawaii and you did not go to white guy because they're just the way our brain works, right? Our brain works as other is where the danger comes from. And I would just tell you, I lived amongst a lot of people that were very different than us and none of them ever raised a hand against me. Now, whether that's, I would even just say, that's certainly my unique experience. I have a dear, dear friend whose husband was killed by pirates in St. Lucia, and they were anchored 200 meters behind me. And so why those guys rode their boat past my boat to get to my friend's boat, I'll never know. I mean, that's one of those uncertainty, unpredictability of life things. But I do know that from her perspective, obviously, sailing to some of these places is very dangerous because it cost her her husband. So I don't mean to say, hey, there's no danger out there. But what I do mean to say is that the danger is out there is not from people who are other. It's actually from people who are exactly like us, exactly like us, right? They are motivated by hunger, by greed, by envy, by all of the same bad things that motivate us to become the worst versions of ourselves. And there's nothing about that that makes them other. It makes them us. I would say that a lot of the danger that happens with people who travel abroad is that they're not situationally aware and that they're tone deaf. That thousand dollar watch that you wear that's just kind of like your beater watch because of course you wouldn't you wouldn't be so pretentious as to wear your Rolex when you travel abroad but yeah that thousand dollar watch is worth like a six months salary in most of those countries so you're just not situationally aware of course you're just putting something in front of somebody that is going to speak to not their angels but their devils we all have them so it doesn't mean that they're other And in my experience, if what you're doing is you're being aware of the people that are around you and you're trying to live in harmony with the people around you, there aren't really these differences that elicit these sort of bad behaviors that everybody wants to make you fear. That's such a beneficial perspective, whether you're traveling or just walking down the street and and seeing people that are different. And and I I think that's a a privilege to be around different people. More and more, I seek out spaces in which people around me are unique. And yet, to your point, there's so much commonality around us. And it's kind of that surfing the the seesaw moment where one end of the spectrum where we might be different based on our circumstances or backgrounds, what we look like. And on the other end, we're all human and we have very similar brains and experiences and needs and desires. And it's acknowledging the differences and similarities at the same time. And I think that requires a lot of awareness to your point. The situational awareness is not just being mindful about who you are and what you're bringing into these situations that might be different, but really acknowledging each other. And and I feel a lot of yearning for that acknowledgement and not just within myself towards others, but hoping that they, embracing that about me too, because then we have that synergy. Certainly, I've been in places where I felt rejected for one reason or another, or maybe people assume something about me because of how I look or present or whatever. And maybe they felt unsafe because of what I represent to them, you know? And sure, it's not always just my responsibility. And it's not just it, you. you know? I, mean, yeah. I mean, that doesn't have anything to do with you. But what I would say is that there's this I think that human beings all have the same core aching needs. We want to be seen. We want to be known. And we want to be valued as what we are. And so I don't think that that differs whether you are in Dubai or whether you are in Trinidad or whether you are in San Antonio. I think that those are the core of our experience is so shared. Um, The core of our experience is a little bit frustrating, realizing that we are not God and that we do not just get to do whatever we want and that Mother Nature will from time to time flick us on the ear. I mean, these are all of our experiences fit into this thing. So one thing I would tell you is I didn't actually cover this in the book, but maybe I'll cover it in the sequel, is that in my experience, there's an internal clock that everybody has that they'll see you, they'll pass you on the street, or they'll see you at the office, and they're going to make some very surface assumptions about you while that clock is still running. 
Okay. And then they're going to see you again the next day. And then they're going to see you a few days later or in a different meeting or in the line. And eventually a little bell is going to go off. Ding. I've seen that person enough times and I've watched them enough times that suddenly there's just this radical shift in how they relate to you. And generally speaking, in most of the islands where we were, that sort of clock would go off at about a month. If they see you for about a month, then they're like, you're not a tourist anymore. You've been here a long time. What's your story? And that's the next thing. It's very natural to ask, what's your story? And what a wonderful way to start, right? Not what do you do? Not where are you from? What's your story? Because I'm seeing you in that moment when I ask that question, what's implied is, huh, you're interesting. And it it happens in all these different cultures, like whether they're speaking French or whether they're speaking English or Creole or whatever it is that they're speaking, that question translates. It's just a question of interest. I'm curious. Tell me your story. What a a great way to approach someone, I think. I'm grateful for that because I yearn to know someone's story and I still find myself in the habit of asking something like, what do you do? <laughs> and every time I, those words come out of my mouth, I go, oh, darn, what, what can I say instead? Because it's so true. I mean, as you and I were talking before we started recording, just like how uncomfortable it is to have to explain what you do, because it's often not really, people often just want that short answer. They want the quick explanation and then they want to move on. But the story is inviting something so much bigger. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about how you speak, Scott, is like you lead with all these stories, not just of your own, but of other people, the people that you've encountered along the way and the lessons that you are gaining from all these different perspectives. The visuals that I've had from this conversation, I have Niagara Falls, Hawaii, I won't mention what state you live in unless you want to mention that, but the mountains can certainly be there. And then all the islands, which is interesting because that's one place where my brain gets a little stuck because I haven't spent a lot of time in those islands. And so I, I can guess what they're like, but I really don't know. There's just so much in this world. We talked about that earlier too, Scott. There's just so much to see. And that's really exciting. Sometimes I have this moment of, wow, I'm not going to see everything. But isn't that incredible to know that the world is so big that we can't see it all in our lifetimes? I I mean, unless we get dedicate our whole lives to seeing things, I suppose. (laughs) Even then you couldn't do it. No, I mean, my dad used to say that boredom is a character flaw. And I think that that's true. (laughs) There's so much to see, so many people to see. And I think that when we start thinking about all of these things to see and all these people and all these different perspectives. To me, what sort of draws it all together is that, you know, I mentioned that I think that to be seen, to be known, um, to be valued, that that's really core to every human being. I think also core to every human being is to want an answer to the question of like, what is the meaning of life and why am I here? And that's going to be true. I mean, that's true for the people that I know in the Bahamas, in Grenada, in St. Lucia. It's true of the people who, pirates who killed my friend's husband. It's true of the dude wielding the machete. I mean, at some point in their lives, they're all asking the question, what is the meaning of life? And if you get the answer to that question, profoundly wrong, your life is going to be quite a ghastly thing because a human being can be contorted into quite a monster. But if you get the answer to that question right, I think it can be marvelous. So there's this French philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, who famously wrote that uh, hell is other people. And, And, you know, I think that he's just dead wrong, absolutely positively dead wrong. So the picture that I want to paint for you here to kind of define the meaning of life is imagine that you could boil all of the universe and everything that's happening in the universe into a line and it's a timeline and it comes up to the point at which you are born. And then the the timeline forks and there's a path that the universe would go on if you hadn't been born and a path that the universe would go on if you had been born. And of course you survive for some period of time and then you die. 
And chaos is kind of injecting randomness and erasing things. And these lines will kind of, they'll be separate from each other as they move out into the future. And so the question is, if those lines are the same, if there is no difference, you can't see any difference between those lines, then there's literally no evidence that you actually ever existed. It, you can't prove that you existed because there is no difference. Everything is exactly the same as it was. But now if you begin to make a difference by the things that you do, the people that you influence, the things that you build, then for a period of time, you can have, uh, there can be a very big difference between the world as it would be without you and the world as it is with you. And so the question becomes then, how do you make that difference the greatest difference? And how do you make that difference sustained for the greatest amount of time? And I think that the answer is pretty obvious. The answer is other people. If I can inspire you, if I can give you a little something that you didn't have, if I can encourage you, if you can build on what I've done, you're going to take a little bit of my DNA, a little bit of my change in the universe, and you're going to propagate it to somebody else. And it's going to be really hard for entropy to come along with its eraser and erase all these different places that we've had little bits and pieces of my DNA going everywhere. And so I, that's, to me, the meaning of life is how do we inspire, encourage, uplift, connect with, equip other people so that some little part of us propagates change into their life and that they then propagate change into somebody else's life because the sum total of difference from me in this universe line that we're on, it will be so different and it'll continue long after I'm dead, right? My book will live long after I'm dead and the 10 people that have read it will be affected in some particular way. <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't know if any guest on the history of the show has ever tried to tackle the meaning of life, Scott. So I really got a hand. <laughs> That's really cool. And what an amazing way to emphasize the importance of our differences and also help me understand why I just don't like transactional things because they don't feel different. Are so many times I've felt like if I don't fit in, I don't belong, but maybe that lack of belonging is actually what's so much more important because that's about being different and fitting in doesn't feel so important. And certainly we can think about that from different concepts, but there is just a lot of pressure to fit in the status quo, the echo chamber. And I've faced that so much in my life and it, it it feels like such a big force, but you've really inspired me. You've made a difference in my life to really help talk through these big things. And you have such a eloquent ease in which you express it, Scott, all this complexity. I've just really enjoyed exploring with you today and I'm deeply grateful. I feel it in my body. I feel a shift in my state in this hour that we spent together. And it's almost felt like this meditation with you. So thank you. Oh, <laughs> thank wow. you for that. That is high praise. Thank you. Well, I'm glad that it touched you. I have enjoyed so very much having this conversation with you. So I won't forget it very soon either. Oh, and what else could you ask for to make that little difference in someone's lives and the ripple effect? And then hopefully the listener has felt something as well. <laughs> and if they have, we've mentioned Scott's book and we've mentioned a variety of things today. So there's two places that you can take the next step if you want to dig in more, if you want to continue. If this don't, you don't want this to be over, it doesn't have to be just because the episode concludes. So first is in the podcast player. There's a short description of this episode there along with Link to Scott and to learn more. In this moment, I haven't decided, is it to your website or is it to your book? What's your preference, Scott? What should we put there? Your book or your, your website? Send them to the website, surfaceesaw.com. Perfect. It's such a great domain name. So I will put that there for anyone who just wants to, to branch out and to see where their journey goes with you, Scott. And then if you want even more, and if you want to go back, Scott, you had so many great quotes. I was taking notes and thinking, wow, this is going to be hard to narrow down. Usually I, I think there might be like four or five quotes that we highlight per episode. And I, it's going to be some work for me to narrow it down. But that's great because you can get it all in one place, including the, the non-highlighted quotes. They're, they're all included in a blog post style. 
And that's also linked in your podcast player, or you can go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. When you find this episode, that's where that blog post with the quotes, with the links, everything there. And eventually when the video goes up, it'll be embedded there. If you want to take in Scott beyond the audio experience, there'll, there'll be a video, but it's not my top priority yet, to be honest. <laughs> it'll probably take some time, but one day it'll be there. Thank you so much, Scott, for this wonderful time. This was so fun. Just wonderful and encouraging. Thank you for making this happen. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.